Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 11. We heard last episode how battle group Foxbat had been heading towards Norton de Matosh, or Balombo, as it's now known, en route to the port of Lobito in support of UNITA and opposing the MPLA as well as its army, FAPLA. That battle group had only just been formed on the 2nd of October 1975 before Foxbat was thrust into the conflict, rushing towards at least one and possibly more FAPLA battalions supported by armoured cars, which had taken up positions in Balombo. It was now the 5th of October, and Foxbat, along with UNITA battalions, had been pushing westward in an attempt at halting Fapla's approach to Huambo and Quito. I'm dropping the older names because, as you'll hear, it's going to get very confusing, and for those following the saga using Google Maps or something like that, you'll not find the older names very easily. An MPLA reconnaissance plane had been spotted as Foxbat and co. approached Balombo on the 4th of October, but the Commander Major Holzhausen, who led Battle Group Foxbat, wasn't convinced they had been seen as he'd parked the vehicles under the trees during the day. He was wrong, they had been spotted. The MPLA was also aware that the South Africans were among the United soldiers and had rushed Cuban advisers to the area, something the South Africans were not aware of themselves at the time. Before the coming assault, Major Holzhausen and his Unita counterpart, Major Lumumba, had discussed their tactics. It was going to be a direct approach using the road with the land cruiser armed with an anti-aircraft gun up front, followed by the armoured cars. Holzhausen, in the command car, would base himself behind these, followed by the Land Rover with the Browning machine gun, and then the soldiers, who climbed on board the two cargo trucks operating as troop carriers. Things got off to a bad start when shortly after they began to move before dawn on the 5th of October, one of the panards broke down. That meant they were now down to just one armoured car left to face Fapla in Balombo. Onward they drove, and just before Balombo, the road rose over a small hill flanked by a steep cliff on one side for around a mile before that road descended to the all-important bridge over the Kala River I mentioned last episode. It was then the battle group saw the MPLA spotter plane, which flew over their vehicles out of firing range. They had definitely been seen because two flares were fired from the plane. The Fapla troops had set up their position on high ground west of the river, which flowed from southeast to northwest, and were armed with artillery, machine guns and mortars. They overlooked miles of Angolan bush and felt and were in an excellent position and held their fire until the first UNITA soldiers were around 300 metres from the strategic bridge. Then they opened fire with their machine guns, artillery and mortars. The first shot, fired by Fapla, hit Major Holzhausen's vehicle. Luckily for him and those aboard his Land Rover, the chassis was struck and the men were thrown out of the vehicle, with the only one suffering a shrapnel wound in his cheek. The UNITA soldiers were hit by intense fire Meanwhile, hand grenades were being dropped from the spotter plane, which unnerved Jonas Avimbi's men. They were demoralized. During training, it had become apparent that they could not be deployed in depth, running the risk of shooting each other, so they were actually now attacking in a single file. In a few minutes, the SADF members were alone with a handful of seconded UNITA troops, as the rest had decided to beat a hasty retreat. The South Africans decided to fall back too after firing off a few rounds from the Browning and 122mm anti-aircraft gun. The thick bush made it extremely difficult to range and hit the targets, but the missiles that were fired hit Fapla troops concentrated on their right flank. They fired another at the Fapla left flank, then they withdrew two miles back eastwards. Meanwhile, the armoured car group continued firing despite the others retreating. By now, the action had lasted close to an hour. The Fapla company of about 150 men were seen trying to conduct a flanking manoeuvre. 
and the SADF realized that most of these men were Cubans. Their hair was longer and they looked different. The Cubans had not seen the Browning machine gun armed Land Rover at the rear, which then opened fire, slowing their advance. The SADF and UNISA retreated and consolidated, while Holzhausen and Lumumba decided what to do next. They had been told by the South Africans in one of the armoured cars that Russian heavy vehicles had been seen supporting the Fapler units. They had managed to destroy one of these, along with an anti-tank weapon, believed to be a 106mm recoilless gun. A few dozen Fapler soldiers had been killed, and that night they cleared away the bodies and also took Holzhausen's broken vehicle. Apart from the slightly wounded South African, Unito lost two men, with at least a dozen more listed as casualties. The SADF man was sent back to Rundu, where he arrived on the 7th of October. When Holzhausen was debriefed later, he explained that Unita did not appear to be ready to fight Fapler, and it was believed that the FNLA was also not effective. Unita leader Jonas Savimbi and Major Lumumba were dejected when discussing this first battle. This amounted to a tactical retreat because the bridge at Kala, which was supposed to be taken and held, was still controlled by the MPLA. However, it was also clear that the presence of the Cubans was crucial as their aggressive tactics had led to the loss. Battle group Foxbat, the 19 South Africans, returned to Rundu for new orders. There were three fronts in this war, and so far, the actions of the Allies had not impressed the SADF. This action was South Africa's first real one of the war. It had temporarily halted Fapla's columns. UNITA was now in a defensive position east and north of Khombo, and the initiative was technically with the MPLA. It was clear that the South Africans needed more heavy weapons if they were going to make a success of this fight for southern Angola. So Commandant Eddie Webb agreed with the military attaché van der Waals that they should ask Pretoria for a squadron of armoured cars. Luckily, SADF HQ had been planning to do just that. So by mid-October, a number of Irland 90s, as they're known, were flown to Khwamba on board C-130 transport planes. The Irland was a heavily modified version of the French Panard AML 90s, as I explained in an earlier podcast, and would become the backbone of South Africa's efforts in the Angolan War. Battle group Foxbat had tasted what it was like facing Cubans alongside Fapla troops fighting for the MPLA government, but they wouldn't be alone. Soon they would be joined by a second task force called Zulu. As the first phase of this operation continued, the second would be dominated by a far more ambitious phase, which was to drive the MPLA out of southern Angola entirely. Remember, while UNITA controlled the east and central eastern regions of Angola, the MPLA controlled the coastal regions and most of southern Angola, through to a town I would come to visit myself in 1981 called Onjiba. The MPLA also held the important port towns such as Benguela and Lobito, along with Nambibe and the small fishing village of Tombua. What was planned in early October 1975 was a massive push to shunt the MPLA out of the entire south of Angola by Independence Day, 11th November 1975. This plan suffered from a few major weaknesses. The first was a clear political outcome, which was supposed to force the OAU to get the MPLA to a negotiating table with UNITA. The second was a strategic challenge. How far into Angola would the SA Defence Force go? I used Commandant Jan Breitenbach's quote in a previous podcast, indicating just how confused things were. Should they take the capital or not? What was the exact point the SADF would halt in such an attack? Was it Benguela or Lobito or Luanda? If the SADF took Benguela, then they'd control the all-important railway line from Zaire and Zambia. If they took Lubango, 
it would be a major blow against the MPLA as the town was their regional headquarters and administrative head office. Should they help UNITA seize the entire south of the country before Independence Day? Then would the OAU get involved? There are many ifs and buts. Looking back from the advantage of the present, it appears an extremely long shot. The South Africans, the apartheid nation, was going to try and put pressure on the OAU, which was a black African Union, to support their allies, UNITA. Seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? What you have to understand, though, is back in 1975, the OAU was undecided about what to do about Angola. In the words of author Willem Steenkamp, it was hopelessly split down the middle. Prime Minister B.J. Forster's diplomacy at the time meant it was not a simple matter of black nations supporting the MPLA. The role that the Russians and Cubans were playing in Angola had already unnerved some of the newly independent nations of Africa. They had just emerged from colonization, the British, the French, the Belgians. Now suddenly, another quasi-European nation was messing about in their backyard, Russia. And what exactly were the Cubans up to? Their stated aim was to foster revolutions, but leaders in Zaire and Zambia and other countries were not very happy to hear about Cuba's interest in the working class murdering political leadership they called capitalists. The South Africans settled on a single expanded aim despite confusion about exactly what the military aim would be. The SADF wasted no time in setting up this larger force, and a few days after the botched Balumbo attack, 73 motorized brigade officer commanding Colonel Kurs van Heerten was phoned at his HQ in Vereniging. A few days later, he was in Rundu base in the Kavango, just south of the Angolan border. The second front in this battle was about to begin. When Van Heeren arrived in Rundu, he was in for a bit of a shock. Brigadier Skuman of Southwest Command met him and introduced the professional soldier to what can only be called a ragtag bunch of quasi-mercenaries. That's a bit harsh. They were all soldiers, but let me give you a bit of detail. Firstly, there was Battle Group Alpha, a battalion of Angolan and Caprivi San or Bushmen, special soldiers who were to fight with a lot of courage in a short while. They were led by Commandant Delville Linford of the SA Army. Secondly, there was Battle Group Bravo, which was made up of three companies of the Chipenda faction soldiers from Angola. If you remember, Chipenda left the MPLA in 1974, unhappy with a number of decisions, and he'd made his way south. Here they were, in southwest Africa, getting ready to go fight back home. The Angolan commander was Commandante Businia, and they were now part of the FNLA. And the overall leader was SADF Commandant Jan Breitenbach. He was a SADF Special Forces expert and was to make some memorable decisions in the coming months. Breitenbach was also to become a revelation to many and the scourge of his own commanding officers as he tended to call a spade a spade. He was what we call a soldier's soldier. These two battle groups were supplied with a handful of 81mm mortars and Vickers medium machine guns. All were issued with FNLA uniforms and then Van Heerten was shown their transport. Here was another shock for the professional soldier. Former vegetable lorries, mostly Mercedes-Benzes, were lined up. The vehicles had been carrying potatoes, tomatoes, onions, okra and spinach. Now they were going to carry soldiers. With this motley crew, Van Heerden was expected to capture most of southwestern Angola, facing Fapla and Cuban troops supported by medium and heavy artillery, aircraft and being technically advised by Russians. However, what this force lacked in equipment, it was going to make up in pure and bridled fighting spirit, as we'll see. Van Heerden was not going to be easy to beat, even by Cubans who'd had experience fighting in Angola. The South African-led forces were not the same as they'd met previously. 
These men had a history of warfare deeply embedded in their culture. Many continued to grow up with firearms like the ancestors the Boers who fought the British. This was actually the type of warfare that men like Van Heerden and Breitenbach were born to fight. Highly mobile, not fettered by nitpicking generals who micromanaged. They were provided a broad objective, some unusually skilled men like the sand units, and support. Later in the war, the composition would be tested along with the mobility, and then the political confusion would leave many of these gifted soldiers wondering why they had bothered in the first place. But that's later. So this task force, which was given the name Zulu, was going to create havoc for the MPLA and their Cuban allies in the next few weeks. It began at 2 p.m. on the 14th of October 1975, when most of Bravo group with the former Chipanda soldiers led by Commandant Breitenbach leaving Rundu and heading off towards the Angolan border. It was initially slow going, and at 10 at night they were still heading to the rendezvous point. As they drove north, they were suddenly aware that there were hundreds of men and women standing at the side of the road. These were Angolan refugees who'd been told they were on their way north to fight the MPLA. So much for secrecy. Still, they met up with the rest of Bravo group a short while later and bivouacked at the side of the road out of sight. After some problems with the roads, which were sand tracks, or not real roads actually, in most places, Alpha and Bravo joined up to the east of their first target, on Jiva or Pereira de Esha. At dusk, on the 17th of October, they arrived at a village called Kunivai, still some distance away from Anjiva as they swung south. There they located a company of UNITA troops, but the company commander was absent. Commandant Breitenbach and a platoon of infantry and a mortar section decided to wait for the commander's arrival and his blessing before continuing onwards. In the evening, and suddenly, the UNITA soldiers opened fire on this platoon out of the blue, and the FNLA mortar group in Breitenbach's company returned fire. They set fire to the UNITA barracks. Sixty of those soldiers made a break for it into the night. The task force stopped there for that night, deciding to take the evening meal away from the blazing building. Colonel van Yerten radioed a message back to Rundu, which read, First elements were attacked by UNITA upon arrival. Compliments returned. No losses. They were now heading south on a small sandy track, almost impassable at times, when they found that the MPLA were based at a village called Mupa. There were only 12 MPLA troops who ran away when they saw the approaching convoy. A few kilometers later, the Land Rover driven by one of the lieutenants by the name of J.C. Van Fake was hit by an RPG, but the missile failed to explode and an exchange of fire took place that left half a dozen MPLA soldiers dead. The rest managed to escape. The enemy, however, was growing more aware of the approaching task force and it was in late afternoon on the 18th October that they were ambushed by a much more effective FAPLA force. This firefight lasted more than three hours, with the enemy firing a large number of RPGs at the trucks and other task force vehicles, leaving the infantry to dig in hurriedly. Battle group Bravo's mortar groups returned fire, but it was too late to help Lieutenant Van Veek. His vehicle was targeted once more, though he managed to fight off the attackers while the mortar fire had killed a handful of FAPLA troops. Once more, the enemy melted away, but two Bravo group troops, the FNLA members, had been killed. There was some debate later about who had shot whom, as the official SADF report said it was a friendly fire incident. So, the task force Zulu rolled into Uvali, around 50 kilometers north of Anjiva, late that night, after another short firefight that drove another small FAPLA force away. There, in Uvali, they discovered a few crates of hand grenades and AK ammunition, along with MPLA uniforms, and loaded these onto their cargo trucks. 
They would come in handy later in the street fighting that would take place in Angolan towns. Their next stop would be on Jiva, where Farpla had chased out Junita only on the 1st of October. The Farpla unit there was under the command of someone called Commandante Cowboy, and his actions had helped the MPLA government take charge of most of the Kuneni district. This was a big problem for the South Africans, with those large towns so close to the southwest African border, and the likelihood that Swapo guerrillas would soon arrive to take advantage of the chaos and invade Ovumberland. With that, we must halt and secure the perimeter for this episode. Next episode, we'll rejoin Task Force Zulu as they swing to the north once more, aiming at the port towns of Benguela and Lobito in what one United States military observer called a blitzkrieg. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com. You can email me there through the contact list. And also, you can rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. For more pressing matters, you can reach me directly on Twitter at Des Lathan. Until then, fique seguro. Ciao.